This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on today's program, I want to continue thinking with you about Harold Camping. All of us were embarrassed by the failed prediction of Jesus' return on the 21st of May. Far more important than the inane prophecies of Harold Camping is his theology of the church. I came across an important article published by the Christian Research Institute and written by James R. White that focuses on Camping's theology. After reading this, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that Harold Camping is none other than a false teacher, indeed, a false prophet. Let me explain. First of all, a few thoughts about Harold Camping's role in modern Christianity, both past and present. Harold Camping is the president of Family Station Incorporated, a California-based radio ministry with worldwide broadcast facilities, including more than 150 outlets in the United States. Over the years, this ministry has been a significant blessing to believers as they have heard both national and local pastors preach and teach over family radio. However, over the last several years, White writes that Harold Camping has chosen to pit himself against the entire Church of Jesus Christ, proclaiming that God has destroyed the Church, that the era of the Church is finished, and that the only means God uses to evangelize the world is family radio and ministries like it. Camping spends much of his on-air time explaining to listeners why they should leave their churches, abandon the oversight of elders, stop using the ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and gather around their radios for fellowship in this post-church age. He has declared that churches that once aired their worship services on the network must follow new rules. They can no longer call themselves churches on the program. They cannot announce meeting times, and pastors cannot refer to themselves by that title on the air. As a result, most have removed their services, leaving family radio, in the words of White, a relative ghost town, close quote. Well, what is Harold Camping's theology of the church? As far as I know, his ideas have not been published in a particular book. There is one booklet or pamphlet entitled, Has the Church Age Come to an End? that he's written. But he's preached extensively on his radio stations on this topic. Perhaps most importantly was a 13-part series on his new doctrine. It was aired in 2001 and has been re-aired since then. White quotes from this program and provides a succinct summary of the crux of Harold Camping's theology about the church. I'm going to quote from one of these messages. At the beginning of the first tribulation, God has a quick change in his action. These are Harold Camping's words. The beginning of the tribulation signified that the churches have ceased to be the means by which God plans to evangelize the world, and that is why it is the Great Tribulation. He's again Camping's words. Remember in our last study we talked about it's a time of weeping? It's a time when we ought to be sorrowing in our hearts because we see the churches 
that should have known better. They have not turned away from wrong doctrines. And so God finally has removed the candlestick so that they have a form of godliness, but they really deny the power of it. Again, that is a quote from one of Camping's messages. To Harold Camping, the Holy Spirit is no longer in the church, guiding, directing, blessing the preaching, giving divine authority to the proclamation of his word, and especially applying the gospel in order for souls to be saved. The church is, in Camping's words, an empty shell. There are no more elders or deacons, no more divine authority in the church. The ordinances have been done away with. And White shows in an important article that Camping believes that baptism and the Lord's Supper were ceremonial laws that were given to the church alone. Since the church egg is gone, so are these ordinances. There is to be no more baptism or celebration of the Lord's table. What are Christians therefore to do? Camping teaches that such precepts as a Sunday Sabbath are still valid. He commands that believers are not to forsake the gathering together, as the Hebrew text says. But believers are to flee the local church and gather on Sunday, sing hymns, and listen to family radio together. If there's a group, they can form a fellowship. And these fellowships, however, are to have no elders and no deacons or ordinances. They're unorganized groups that simply meet for edification. Well, how did camping arrive at such a bizarre set of teachings? White, in his article, offers an important insight. There is one simple answer. Unfettered, inconsistent, arbitrary, and at times incoherent allegorical interpretation of the text of Scripture. Camping has long taught that view, which was popularized in the very early church by Origen, that sees first a basic literal meaning that anyone can understand. More important is a moral meaning which requires more insight. But the most important is the real meaning, the spiritual meaning, which requires spiritual insight and knowledge. An example of how ludicrous Camping's allegorical interpretive scheme has become, as he talks about the church, he uses allegorically the two witnesses of Revelation 11, he uses Jerusalem and Judea, he uses the entire Old Testament, he uses Hezekiah's life, and he uses the boat, which is mentioned in John 21, all as allegorical pictures of the church. As White so correctly observes, quote, allegorical interpretation destroys the authority of the text of Scripture. No one can use this method and honestly say the word of God says, for their system replaces the meaning of the text, which is communicated through grammar, lexical meanings, context, and background, what I call and what is usually called the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. All of that is replaced by more or less relevant insights and imagination of the interpreter, the source of the Bible's authority, the God-breathed text. See 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. The God-breathed text is replaced by the mere thoughts of a man or of a woman. Camping is proclaiming a false and dangerous set of teachings rooted in a provocative and treacherous interpretive scheme. I am defending and will the rest of my life the very authority of Scripture, not Harold Camping's allegorical interpretation, the authority of Scripture for a Bible 
that cannot communicate God's truth consistently to each generation cannot be a solid foundation for faith. A few closing thoughts. Years ago, theologian Anthony Hokema offered four distinctives that can alert us to a set of false teachings. Those four are, one, an extra-scriptural source of authority, the denial of justification by faith alone, second, third, the devaluation of Jesus Christ and his uniqueness, and fourth, the group as an exclusive community of the saved. The danger of Harold Camping and his teaching is that number four and number one seem to fit his teaching. When his so-called prophecy about May 21 did not materialize, did he apologize? No. Did he concede it was false? No. Instead, he said May 21st was actually a, these are his words, a spiritual judgment day. The actual day of cataclysmic judgment, he says, will be October the 21st, 2011. Theologian Albert Moeller has observed, quote, Harold Camping has refused all correction and all efforts to persuade him to cease his false teachings. He has received delegations of concerned theologians and major Christian leaders, but he has resisted all efforts and repudiated all accountability to the church. Harold Camping is a classic example. These are Moeller's words. Harold Camping is a classic example of a false teacher and a false prophet about which the Bible has much to say. Close that quote. He claims to have a secret knowledge, Harold Camping does, that has arisen from his allegorical interpretive scheme, has rejected all correction from the believing church, and claims that he, and he alone, is right. In my judgment, Harold Camping is a very sad individual who began well in his early radio ministry, serving many in the body of Christ. But he is now leading countless people down the road of theological bankruptcy and heretical teachings. It is God's word that sits in judgment of Harold Camping and his false teachings. In our second and final perspective on our program today, I want to think with you about the death of Jack Kevorkian and the Death with Dignity movement that he represented. Dr. Jack Kevorkian died last week at the age of 83. He had assisted in about 130 suicides in the 1990s and thereby became a symbol of the Right to Die movement that gained strength during that decade. Perhaps as a result of that decade, doctor-assisted suicide has gained legitimacy in Oregon, Washington, and Montana, but in no other states of the Union. Kevorkian was a Michigan pathologist who would hook up patients to his homemade suicide machine. Some died of lethal injection, while others were strapped to a face mask that was connected to a carbon monoxide canister. The patients would control when they would kill themselves. He was stripped of his pathology license in 1991 and eluded authorities for almost a decade, emerging from four trials unscathed. But in September 1998, Kevorkian killed a patient who was too weak to do it alone. He was found guilty and sentenced to between 10 and 25 years in prison. After serving eight years, he was released in 2007, but he promised to perform no more assisted suicide. 
Kevorkian's methodology and his passion for doctor-assisted suicide marked those latter decades of his life. He did not provide just death to the dying. He aided anyone whose suffering seemed sufficient to warrant his assistance. When the Detroit Free Press investigated his practice in 1997, it found that 60% of those he assisted were not actually terminally ill. In several cases, actually, autopsies revealed no anatomical evidence of disease. This record was ignored or glossed over by his admirers. After he was released from prison in 2011, he was treated like a civil rights revolutionary rather than a killer. With fawning interviews and 60 Minutes, speaking engagements in which he received $50,000 in engagement, and hagiographic HBO biopic movie starring Al Pacino. By God's grace, America has not embraced Kevorkian's perverse vision of a dignified death. But consider the suicide clinics that have sprung up in Switzerland, for example. One such clinic is run by a man named Ludwig Minnelli, which charges about $6,000 for his service. A recent study has shown that 21% of those whom Minnelli helps die are not terminally ill. In the last 15 years, more than 1,000 people have been assisted by Minnelli and in their desire to die. Is this really the kind of civilization we desire to build? Jack Kevorkian's perverse vision, what Ludwig Minnelli is doing in Switzerland? Is there really a right to die in this manner? Is this really what is meant by death with dignity? In my book, Christian Ethics in a Postmodern World, I offer several insights in how we should think about euthanasia, which is what Kevorkian represented. A believer in Jesus Christ has a very different view of death. Death in Scripture is clearly the judgment of God upon sin. God told Adam that if he ate the tree in the garden, he would die. And when he and Eve ate, they both experienced that separation from God that resulted from sin, and then eventually they experienced physical death. Sin gains authority over humans, therefore, and results in a separation from God, which is what death is. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ dealt the death blow to sin and rendered death inoperative in the believer's life. Because Jesus conquered death through his resurrection, the believer need not fear death. Although that person may die physically, the soul separated from the body, it is not permanent because of the promised resurrection. Hence, Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 and 55, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The believer in Jesus Christ, therefore, faces death with tension. And Paul gives us a window into this tension when he writes, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He says that in Philippians 1. Death means to be with Jesus and have all the daily struggles, both physical and spiritual, over. Although inexplicable death is the door Christians go through to be with Christ. There is no other way, barring Christ's return for his church, for the believer to be with Christ. There is, therefore, the constant pool of heaven matched by the constant pool to remain and serve the Lord on earth. Death remains in the sovereign hand of God, and when it comes to the believer, although anxious and perhaps frightened, the believer trusts the words of Scripture, 
To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, 1 Corinthians 5, 3. At the same time, the Bible teaches that every person, believer and unbeliever, is inherently dignified and worthy of respect. It is always proper and ethically right to fight for life. That is because men and women are created in the image and likeness of God. Human life is sacred. No one should be demeaned or cursed, the Bible says. To treat a human who bears God's image in an undignified manner, to wantonly destroy life, or to assume the position of authority over death and life of another human being is to step outside God's revelation. The Bible affirms the intrinsic worth and equal value of every human life, regardless of its stage or its condition. In a word, that is the Judeo-Christian view of life. What are the implications of this high view of life? First, it seems logical that life is so valuable it should be terminated only when highly unusual considerations dictate an exception. In the Netherlands, for example, the parliament has empowered doctors to help individuals commit suicide if they're suffering from terminal illness or even if they're struggling with certain emotional mental disorders. As I said, Kevorkian has helped over 130 people commit suicide, some who were not terminally ill and only were suffering from clinical depression. It's difficult to justify such actions from Scripture. Such practices like what Jack Kevorkian did in the 90s cheapen life. They treat the human as of little value and with no dignity. In short, to allow widespread euthanasia, as is starting to happen in Western Europe, is to foster a culture of death. Another implication of the Judeo-Christian view of life is that personhood is defined in biological terms. A human is a person whose life begins at conception, not birth. Personhood is not defined according to IQ, a sense of the future, a capacity to relate to other human beings, or any other criteria. The point is that God creates life, defines its beginning as conception, and sustains life. Humans who believe his word will maintain the same view and always fight for life. To end life in a premeditated manner, as Dr. Jack Kevorkian did, or as is legitimized in doctor-assisted suicides, violates in my judgment, the Bible's high view of life. So what do we do? How do we approach if someone that we love or care for is terminally ill or extremely sick or may die? Let me suggest another alternative, the Christian hospice movement. This perspective has rejected the propensity of present culture to redefine personhood and justify euthanasia. However, what does a Christian do when a loved one is diagnosed with a terminal disease? What does one do if someone dear develops Alzheimer's disease or Huntington's disease? What if extremely painful cancer develops and the only promise is months or perhaps years of pain only to be followed by death? There is no easy answer to this. We live in a fallen world. And Christians will die just like non-believers will. Christians will get cancer just like non-believers will. Christians will develop Alzheimer's just like non-Christians will. But the Christian hospice movement is a powerful alternative for Christians today. Sometimes in a facility like a home, a person's home, 
or sometimes in a care facility, an assisted care facility, or in a special home or special facility. There's so many variations. Care for the dying person is provided. This hospice care involves managing pain, if there is severe pain, with, with drugs, giving loving comfort, providing daily service to meet all human needs, whatever the specific situation. That care is then complemented by spiritual encouragement from God's Word, mixed with prayer and edifying opportunities as reminders of God's goodness and of eternal life. Death is not easy, and that is such an understatement. Death is not easy. But as I stated earlier in this perspective, the Christian approaches death differently than the unbeliever. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. Death is our enemy, but the loving, empathetic, nail-scarred hands of Jesus are outstretched to welcome his child home to heaven at death. Hospice care provides the dignified alternative that honors God's creation, human life, all the while preparing the dying saint for the promise that awaits them. The Bible makes it very clear that death is our enemy, that death is to be loathed. It is that which represents more than anything else the sin and rebellion of the human race. But Jesus conquered death. That's what the resurrection was all about. And that is the basis, the foundation of our hope. That is why Christians do not fear death. It's inexplicable. It's hard to talk about. It's difficult to understand in our finite minds. But death is the portal we as believers go through to be with Jesus. And the Christian hospice movement, in my judgment, offers a powerful, compassionate, caring alternative to what Kevorkian is tried to do in the 1990s. It offers an alternative to what is becoming increasingly pervasive in Western Europe, a widespread embracing of euthanasia in its various forms. But the Christian hospice movement where pain is managed, where care is provided, but there's the reading of Scripture, the singing of hymns, the ongoing edification and reminders of the hope for the believer that Jesus Christ brings. The Christian hospice movement preserves the dignity of life that the mercy killers and that Dr. Jack Kevorkian's promise, they promised that, they held it out there, but they could never deliver. The Christian hospice movement for the believer dying of cancer or suffering with Alzheimer's or Huntington's or some kind of severe debilitating disease offers dignity, offers hope, offers what the death with dignity, the euthanasia movement, the Jack Kevorkians cannot deliver. They make a promise that's false only in biblical Christianity and the hope that it has and in the hospital hospice care facilities that dot our nation now as faith-based, Christ-centered, can offer that hope and dignity that honors the Lord and honors his creation. 
May God give us the grace and mercy as a nation to see that as a viable alternative to the culture of death that Kevorkian offered. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging onto this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.